if you had a television in the 90s, you probably recognize who this is. <laughs> Phoebe from Friends, the kooky one of the Friends, the folk singer, the new age massage therapist. Uh, she is not a good singer, and yet she continues to get gigs. And one of those gigs that she got was at the New York Public Library, singing to the kids. Now, like all her words are G-rated, but they're about real things. And so she starts to sing about, you know, adults finding their true sexual orientation and the fact that grandparents, yes, they die. And your parents probably lie to you about this. The parents who hired her are not very happy, so they fire her. Until later in the episode, she's back at her regular gig at, uh, what was it, Central Perk? It's such like a Gen X thing here, you know, remembering Friends episodes. Um, and she's singing again, and this little kid comes in off the street and sticks his, his uh, head in the door and said, Is this the place where the lady is who tells the truth? <laughs> and they say, Yeah. And this horde of children come in. Because they want to hear the truth about life. Now, maybe this was true in the 90s when, I don't know, kids were being raised on Barney or whatever it was that made it just feel like all happy, sunshiny. But, you know, the truth is that kids lit, kids' stories, kids' lives have pretty much always told the truth about the fact that life can sometimes be really, really difficult. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. And if I die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. Uh, I can't remember when I first heard that, and I can't remember the age at which I first heard that, but I got to tell you, I don't think I slept probably real well that night. <laughs> when the bow breaks, the cradle will fall, and down will come cradle, baby, and all. Whoosh. The bottom drops out of our lives sometimes, right? And, you know, Grimm's fairy tales, all these kinds of things, they tell the, the truth about our lives, that sometimes life is just difficult. And so in this Stories with Soul series, this recurring series that Reverend Lee and I are going to offer over the next few weeks, I'm going to start with one today that is about one of these difficult facts of life. I know an old lady who swallowed a fly. I know an old lady who swallowed a fly. I don't know why she swallowed that fly. Perhaps she'll die. To quote Ron Burgundy, that escalated quickly. <laughs> Yay. And I won't go through all the verses, but it goes on to here. The final one. I know an old lady who swallowed a cow. I don't know how she swallowed the cow. She swallowed the cow to catch the goat. She swallowed the goat to catch the dog. She swallowed the dog to catch the cat. She swallowed the cat to catch the bird. She swallowed the bird to catch the spider that wriggled and jiggled and tickled inside her. She swallowed the spider to catch the fly. But I don't know why she swallowed that fly. Perhaps she'll die. And then the final verse, as it's originally done, I was lied to as the, the, the children of baby boomers when they played me the Peter, Paul, and Mary version. And it goes like, of course she lived. I know an old lady who swallowed a horse. She's dead, of course. Woof. This is the process. Something goes wrong. Something small goes wrong. Some distress, some dis-ease. And then to chase away the source of the dis-ease, the distress, something larger comes along that perhaps the old lady thought, okay, this will take that away. But the thing that was to take the first thing away became the problem itself and came supplanted by something else bigger. And on and on and on it goes all the way until this terribly sad ending. 
more hunger, more pain, more pain, more hunger, build up the tolerance for something, needing more and more and more of it until finally it has no room more left for life. Sounds like I know an old lady who swallowed a fly is exactly about the truth of addiction. Just can't stop. Need more and more and more. All those animals backed up in the digestive system, crowded, packed in, no room to move, no room to breathe, no room to live, no room to love. Starting all with that one little discomfort, that one little fly that caused distress and distress and distress and distress was added to it. Now, I'm not going to cover today, you know, where addiction comes from. You know, there's a lot of debate and even some controversy about this. You know, is it the medical model? Is it the interpersonal model? Is it the psychosocial model? Is it the spiritual model? All kinds of theories. Myself, I don't think I know enough yet to say this is exactly where it comes from. I know it's here. I know it's a part of many lives. Um, But I recently read something about a new theory or a different theory about addiction that makes a lot of sense to me. It's from a woman named Mia Slavovitz. And she's a journalist and a writer, and even more, she's got skin in the game because she is a person in long-term recovery over 30 years from a harrowing heroin addiction when she was a young person. Now, what she says about addiction is that she sees it through the prism. Both her experience and her research tells her she sees it through the experience that addiction is like a learning disorder. She explains by way of her own life that she developed early on some very maladaptive coping mechanisms for her own pain. She grew up in a family in which there was a lot of trauma, there was a lot of loss, and because of that, her own life didn't get a lot of attention, care, or love. And so she recognized that for years she lived with undiagnosed Asperger's, but no one was paying attention to what was going on with her. And so she developed these other ways of learning to deal with her life. I I like this model because it says if that addiction can be learned by stressing the brains, the minds, the heart's plasticity to grow, certain things about ourselves can be unlearned as well. We can continue to grow. And I think it all comes down to this near universal experience of anyone I've ever known recovery, including myself, which is that at the core of it, it is about learning to relate to the pain, the distress, the dis-ease of our lives in healthy as opposed to maladaptive ways. There's a, a great teacher, Richard Rohr, a progressive Franciscan teacher, who, although not in recovery himself, has worked with many, many hundreds of people in recovery over the years, and so understands the deep spiritual process of recovery from addiction. And he has a quote that for me just about nails it all, like so many things, like recovery and just about everything else. The truth will make you free, but first it will make you miserable. The truth will make you free, but first it will make you miserable. This hit me In the fall of 2005, when I was less than two months sober, I mean, I'm now a person in long-term recovery, which in my case means it's been well over a decade since I have had a drink. And I came to learn the truth of the truth that sets us free and also makes us miserable because I missed a sign for this. Yes, Newark Airport can cause suffering in and of itself, but that's not exactly what happened here. 
what happened was, to give you a little bit of background, I was in New York City for the first time since getting sober. New York City was the place where I was born. New York City, the place where my mother died. New York City, a place that exposed me to a lot of things wonderfully. New York City, a place that exposed a lot of things within me not so wonderfully. New York City was a place of so many firsts in my life. New York City, that was a place of love and of loss. And New York City, that was, I could say now, of then, above all else, was my drinking city. And so I was back in New York for the first time. And the minute after going through, I think we took the Holland Tunnel, after emerging out into the cityscape, into the city streets, I felt immediately tense, tight, anxious, ill at ease, because in truth was I was really, really worried that because I didn't feel comfortable in New York anymore, because I didn't have my medicine that really was my poison, that the city that had been home to me and so many important things in my life had happened there, that I was going to lose this city. And so it wasn't the most pleasant visit. I thought maybe I'd lost home. And um, part of that visit to New York involved seeing my extended family. And let me just say this. I love them. There are no perfect families. And my family has its own absolute imperfections. Just don't tell them this if you see them. One of my family's imperfections is that although they support me as a person, they really have never been curious or all that interested in my recovery. That's not their problem. It's my issue. And perhaps it shed just a little bit light on why I needed to recover and get sober in the first place. So we were seated there on Sunday night dinner, last night in the city. Wonderful Italian restaurant down in Soho, and the drink orders came. And like I was at that point where I knew I did not want to drink, but I was not yet at that point where I did not want a drink. And I had my club soda, and all the rest of them, save for my wife, ordered alcohol. And I thought, F this. F my life. Just the tension built up and the sense of not being understood and not being seen and being ill at ease. All of that built up, and I felt so uncomfortable. Like in my body, just my shoulders were tight and tense, and I couldn't wait to get out there. And so my wife and I were driving back later that night to Philadelphia, and perhaps in whatever level of distress or not paying attention there was, I missed the sign to not go into Newark Airport. Now, let me tell you, this only cost us about 10 minutes worth of getting home later than we expected. But I absolutely exploded. Teresa, my wife, was sleeping next to me in the passenger seat, and I could remember gripping the steering wheel with so much force that I wanted to pull it out of its place. So much anger, and I started openly berating myself about how stupid, about how foolish, about how inattentive I was. And then I went on to how much stress I was under. And the truth is, my friends, I did this all the time to myself when I was drunk. But I hadn't felt anger, sober, real anger, in decades. And it was so freaking uncomfortable. And I was so completely miserable. And at one point, hearing myself berate myself, I also knew I was going to wake Teresa up, and she did wake up. And she was worried about me, and she also was concerned that I was going to drive the car off the road. 
And maybe it was her saying some kind words to me or just letting me know that she was there. I released my grip, not totally on the steering wheel, but not as tight. And I started to cry. That was the first step in my real, true emotional life coming back online after decades offline. All these things out of my control, I finally started to feel them as an awake and aware person. The truth will set you free. And first, it will make you miserable. Absolutely. Oof. Amen and hallelujah. That moment of discomfort was about knowing myself and meeting myself for the first time again. This is what I remember and this is what I've seen over and over again with people in early recovery and sometimes at many points in the recovery journey is kind of like the old, you know, the Hippocratic Oath. A little like that. At least, first, do no more harm. (laughs) There's already enough pain there. There's already enough distress there. I've heard myself say this to myself many times over the years and other people who I care about. Sometimes the biggest win is simply not losing anymore. (laughs) Even if you can't remove the pain, at least we cannot or don't have to make it worse. Just like in the kid's song, the kid's story, There's no way to unswallow the fly. It happened. Stop trying to compensate for it so much. I mean, that's what I recognize so much in my life throughout so much of my life. And I think this is much bigger than just those of us who have experience with addiction. You know, something bad happens, we immediately feel we have to replace it with something else and chase something else. In its forms of addiction, it sounds like and it feels like and it is like. I experienced shame, so I ate until I hated myself. I had a bad day at work, so I thought and sought out anonymous sex with someone who was meaningless to me, and then I felt guilty. I had a fight with my spouse, and so then I drank and I acted like a fool. Of course, you know. We can't take, or very few of us can, all the pain immediately. And so sometimes it is absolutely the safe and right choice to, you know, if it's good for you, have a glass of red wine. Have a little bit of ice cream. Watch Netflix for three hours. (laughs) But here's the thing that all of us have to figure out for ourselves. In expressing kindness and compassion to ourselves, is that what, what we're really doing? Or... Maybe. Are we looking for the spider to eat the fly? That just will create its own problems. Compensating in ways that become the seeds of compulsion. Right? You know the story. It's just a fly. Bad stuff happens. Life challenges us. And yet sometimes we don't recognize, hey, I ate this fly, I don't like it, I'm feeling distress. (laughs) Pretty soon we find ourselves consuming all the other animals in hopes that somehow we'll find our way out by doing the same old thing. There's a writer named Gerald May whose book, Addiction and Grace, Love and Spirituality and the Healing from Addictions, is among the top 
five most important books I have ever read, and I go back to it over and over again. Gerald May, who talks about this capacity to not to have to immediately replace our pain with something else, but to face our pain and create space for it. He calls this contemplative space, not immediately needing to replace one thing or the other. To borrow from uh, another great teacher, speaking words of wisdom, let it be. Not judge ourselves according to the spiritual marketplace. Have you let it go yet? No. Just let it be. And maybe we'll find that in time the fly will be digested. And we don't have to get rid of the distress. This is what Dr. Gerald Mayo was a psychiatrist called homecoming. Coming home to our lives. And all this running away from the flies of our lives begins in fear that somehow we think we are inadequate or not able to digest the fly or won't happen on its own. And the fear of what happens, then we chase the spider, the cows, all the stuff afterward. Close down rather than opening up as best as we can. This openness is something we speak to here in our core beliefs at Wellsprings, that we believe an honest spiritual life fills our God-shaped holes and deepest yearnings and efforts to fill these holes with materialism, unhealthy relationships, and substance abuse leads to despair and to loneliness. Now, I was a part of writing those words when I was like less than six months sober. I, I knew something I didn't know yet. <laughs> And I'm proud to have been a part of that. Truth is, I don't experience a God-shaped hole like this. As if we can find the one piece that's been missing in our hearts, in our lives, in our souls, in our minds, and we put it and we lay it right in there and it's fixed and final and all taken care of. Now, this is how I experience the God-shaped hole. Open, unending, and infinite, which is to say the only kind of God-shaped hole that can hold a life as large and as intimate as could be properly called divine. A love that makes everything holy now, including even our pain. It is one of the terrible ironies of the ongoing distress Warfare, mistrust between the people of the Trugate religions of Judaism and Islam, that both of those traditions are so on target with their prohibitions to say, don't picture God. And yes, these have their fanatical versions that cause bloodshed. But in the very heart of those traditions, what they're saying is be aware of our human tendency to take the fly and want to replace it with the spider and all the way along with the other animals. <laughs> Don't make God, spiritual life, just another thing. There's much I don't know about God. There's a whole hell of a lot I don't need to figure out about God, but I do know this, that God is the opposite of an objectified life. It is a larger life, an open life as I experience it, a channel that flows through us and to us and is us. To borrow the beautiful words and phrase from our Quaker cousins, it is simply way. It makes wide the way of our lives, carrying us back to ourselves, 
into each other, into the pain, the pleasure, the fullness of our lives and all of their details. And so in bringing this message to an end, I want to go back to that first line of this little poem, this little song. I know an old lady who swallowed a fly. This narrator, he, she, they, whoever they are, I don't think they really knew that old lady. Because if there had been a way between them, maybe that friend, seeming, would have actually been a friend and approached that old lady who was in distress and said, you swallowed a fly. You don't look like you're doing so well. What ails you? What is your pain? And the old lady perhaps would have said, would you sit with me while I try to let this fly digest? And that in my alternative, happier, recovering version of this old song, the old lady does not die. The friends sit together. The old lady lives. Just as we do. And just as we can. Making as wide away in our lives as is possible. Amen. May you live in blessing. Would you pray with me? God, beyond words, beyond imagining, known most intimately in our hearts. It's a wide way, a wide path, a path that even can accept with into it all the wrong turns, all the distress, all the dis-ease, all the things we don't get right. And because that wide way truly contains these things and in facing them, we don't need to run away so quickly. We don't need to replace so quickly. We will also recognize there in that wide way our strength, our grit, our grace, our ability to hold this life, its light, its shadow, its beauty, its loss. It's love, it's grief. All one beautiful tapestry. Amen.